right. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. All renewed and energized for another week of broadcasts. And what exciting broadcasts we have lined up for you, especially, I think, tonight's uh, conversation is going to be very interesting. And uh, as longtime listeners of this broadcast will know, I've been trying to highlight the work of artists and musicians and others who are able to put into artistic form the types of things that we talk about on a daily basis here on the program and i think it's important to do so because obviously art has such a powerful effect in shaping our minds our consciousness and uh and not just in an airy fairy or abstract way there's a there's a very real way in which art can truly galvanize public opinion on an issue and uh, you only have to take a look for example at uh, oliver stone's jfk and the way that that at least partially contributed to the passing of the so-called jfk act of 1992 which formed the Assassinations Records Review Board and all of the incredible information about the JFK assassination that came out from that, that could at least in part be attributed to the uh, the galvanizing of public opinion that came in the wake of JFK. So the question is, what if such a, a movie or such a, a, a real game-changing piece of art were able to be created about 9-11? And that's why I'm very excited to have on the line tonight Howard Cohen, a screenwriter and producer who is also a signatory to the Actors and Artists for 9-11 Truth petition at aa911truth.org. And he has been in the publishing, uh, magazine publishing business for decades. He's also worked uh, in consulting uh, with former U.S. Ambassador Joe Wilson. And he is the author of a script for a forthcoming movie called A Violation of Trust, which uh, seeks to dramatize the first day of a president's new investigation into 9-11, so, Howard Cohen, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, James. I appreciate the opportunity. I really like that introduction. Thank you. Well, I, I, I hope I, I can mean, live up to it. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you'll be able to. Well, I, I certainly do mean it because I think it is so important that uh, that we look at it and explore all the aspects of bringing people's attention to various issues, especially sensitive political issues like 9/11. So right off the bat, I, I just gave a very brief summary of yourself and your background, but perhaps you can fill, fill us in a little bit more detail about uh, who you are and where you're coming from. Well, the magazine thing started about 40 years ago. I used to do concert programs for uh, Carnegie Hall in New York City, so I was able to drop off the magazines every night and go sit in an empty seat, which was a great time. Uh, I went to go to 200 concerts in three years. And my business relationship with Joe Wilson uh, went through the period when, uh, unfortunately, Valerie was outed. In fact, I was involved with that to the extent that I was on the, um, I was a witness for the people that were uh, grand jurying for Scooter Libby and such. In fact, uh, some articles uh, from one of your recent uh, guests um, from Truth Out, Jason Leopold, about me in that regard. But I got involved in this 9-11 stuff about five years ago, and after two years of studying it, I just said, uh, everybody wants a new investigation, and David Griffin's books, which I respected very much, said the best way to go about that is prove that the old investigation was no good. So I said, what would happen if people turned on the TV one day, like on C-SPAN, and they were watching a new investigation for a couple of hours? And that's how it started. I called David. I asked him if I could do it. He said, go right ahead. And I'm not 
a movie person as far as in the business, but I'm in, right in Hollywood now making a movie, so you never know what drives <laughs> You never do life. know. Well, I never expected to be in Japan hosting a radio broadcast in Texas uh, via the Internet, so one never knows how these things are going to turn out, but uh, absolutely incredible uh, to, to see this getting uh, launched off the ground here. And again, for people who are looking for more information, they can go to Actors and Artists for 9-11 Truth at aa911truth.org. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com slash radio to all of the relevant information. Let's take a short break, and when we come back from this break, we'll continue talking with Howard Cohen about a violation of trust. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. We are here on Corbett Report Radio on this 30th of January, 2012. And today we're talking to Howard Cohen, the producer and screenwriter behind A Violation of Trust, a forthcoming feature film about 9-11 and a new investigation into 9-11. And uh, hopefully this is a case where we can take fiction and make it into reality. But uh, Howard Cohen, let's start talking about this project. And first, let's start talking about actors and artists for 9-11 Truth and uh, some of the people who are on board with that and who have become signatories to that petition. Well, um, about two, two and a half years ago, I first heard of the idea that David Griffin and some people in the Hollywood area are going to put this group together. And um, since I was just starting to work on the movie, I saw the immediate connection to it. So as it progressed, I followed it along. Uh, they launched the group actually um, on 9-11, actually it was 9-9. They had an event at the uh, City Hall in Los Angeles. Similarly, they had an event in Washington, D.C., and also one in New York City. They were launching three groups. I think it was military officers for 9-11 Truth, actors and artists for 9-11 Truth, and I believe it was scientists for 9-11 Truth. And I um, just came to L.A. about a week before that, so I showed up at the event, and I was, you know, standing on the steps and watching it being filmed, and I think we had Joseph Culp here and uh, John Hurd and Michelle Phillips speaking, and Daniel Sonata was in New York. I think Richard Gage might have been in Washington. Um, it brought this group to uh, the public's knowledge uh, somewhere along the line that they said, you know, that since we're doing the movie under the auspices of the organization, uh, maybe I would serve as the director so that we'd have a single face speaking about both ends of it. But there are a couple of hundred people that have signed this petition, you know, asking for a new investigation. And they are actors and they are artists of all kinds of uh, creations, not just the movie business. A lot of people in music, from Willie Nelson to Graham Nash, uh, uh, you know, all different levels of, of craft. And I feel exactly like, uh, right. And and some yeah. of the names here are just incredible. Some of the people who are already confirmed to be on board with the film, Ed Asner, Martin Sheen, Woody Harrelson, Daniel Sonata, it just goes on and on. But uh, I, I, what stage is it at at this point? Well, we're uh, negotiating with a studio here in um, Glendale. And they've already offered to allow us to make the movie there. And we're talking with production companies and what they call post-production companies where they finish the movie after it's been filmed. Uh, we have a certain amount of money committed. We have a national distributor that we're international distributor we're talking with. We have a deal on the table that we're looking at to have a TV 
our world premiere on 9-11, which is on a Tuesday this year, just as it was in 2001, uh, where maybe dozens and dozens of countries across the world would show the movie on the same day. Uh, for a low-budget movie, which is what they consider us, and, well, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not doing Transformers, if you know what I'm trying to say. And we don't have the kind of money that Oliver Stone had to make uh, JFK. But uh, this movie is more a matter of, uh, for people who might know movies, 12 Angry Men meets 9-11. It all takes place in one room. And you have a dozen or so people that are there back and forth discussing these issues and deciding whether or not, you know, this new investigation is the thing to do. Well, that's right. I mean, that's the thing that excites me perhaps most about this is that uh, reading the description of of the uh, the plot, um, it it sounds very much like something that will be extremely uh, based in in the evidence and will be uh, really delving into it in some some degree of detail. And hopefully, if it gets uh, really off the ground, exposing millions of people around the world to this evidence, perhaps for the first time. So that's uh, that's exactly what we need in this, I think, um, to to really get people to start questioning their own assumptions. And on that note, I suppose the obligatory uh, question in this type of interview is, uh, how did you start questioning uh, your assumptions about 9-11, and how did the uh, the seeds of doubt about what happened on that day get planted in your own mind? Well, the truth of the matter is, I met a couple on a Saturday night, uh, husband and wife. Uh, they were in the lobby of the Marriott Courtyard Hotel in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I was living, and we were chatting. They were both from Florida, where I had lived. And they said, come over and look at this computer. We want to show you this website. You know, we got into this 9-11 and I got hooked. It's contagious, and that was really how it started. And I had the time and the energy and the desire to learn about it. I, I like to sponge things up. And uh, I told you before, you know, one thing led to the next. I mean, there's a there's a series of events in life. We never know where they start. Um, for me, my relationship with 9-11 didn't start in 9-11, although I was in Washington, D.C. that day. I remember 10 minutes after the first plane you know, hit uh, the second plane hit, I think it was. I was at George Washington University. I walked to Georgetown. Every corner had a Jeep with a guy with a really big gun. I mean, I was there, and our producer, Paul Cross, who's already made one 9-11 movie, Severe Visibility, and he's got another one right now that's just going to be finished. Uh, he was in there also, not because of me. He was there working on an actual documentary with, with President Bush in the White House. And he was doing some post-production work, and he said five hours after the Pentagon was hit, I was there. I went across the water, and I was looking at it, and he said, I just knew something was wrong. There was no plane, he said. And then he figured whatever happened in New York must be just as phony. Um, I, I, everyone deals with it differently. Paul was affected immediately, and he was a staunch Republican, and he just felt, you know, so he told me he got sick in the bathroom because of it. For me, it really just started to hit me. Like I said, in, in that hotel, I met the right people at the right time, and they turned me on to it. And uh, I'm hoping that this movie, and there's plenty of movies that are out. These documentaries are fantastic, and Loose Change reached tens of millions of people. But we think that the way we're presenting the information through a question-and-answer procedure is, are the questions that the people would have when they hear the information in, you know, in a documentary format. And we do, a lot of this is, is based on the psychology of why people are not open to what what has affected their lives so gravely. We live in a charade. 
Unfortunately, very true. Um, in some ways, that that really is the the basis of all of this. It, just the public's incredulity that this could possibly have happened, and uh, and it is a matter of breaking through that. And everybody has their own way of coming to that. And uh, and unfortunately, not everyone is woken up by the, just seeing the facts and the videos uh, quite as easily as as others. So something like this hopefully can break through that. So so let's talk about the uh, the development of the script and how this started to come together. Well, I think I'm on the 377th version because I keep changing it all the time. And, and mainly because, you know, it's, it's, we, we have to have a, factually now I'm talking, we have to have a bulletproof, uh, script because when this thing is released, there's going to be a lot of people are going to find, they only want to look for the, you know, the one little hole, if there is one, that they can blow the whole thing apart. And, you know, the media would not necessarily, as it stands today, be friendly to something that is so outspoken as we are about the validity of the official reports. So we have to be bulletproof. And, you know, there's so many things going on. I mean, I get, now that the thing is being announced, I'm getting people wanting me to look at every aspect of every theory about they might have about 9-11. And, and David Griffin and myself, when we first started down this path, he put together a thesis. He says, let's follow these points, and it's the best way. And recently they've come out. Uh, some groups of experts have put together something called consensus points, where it's like best evidence medicine practices, where you, you do a, uh, a series of people looking at evidence and whittling it down till 94% of them all agree on the same things. And uh, we happen to have had the same points in our script already. So uh, there's, a, there's a certain credibility to some of the information that is now available that is sufficient to overturn the uh, official reports before. You know, whether you believe that there was explosives in the Twin Towers, for example, or there was a space ray that blew it up, doesn't matter. That's minutia compared to the fact that they obviously were brought down intentionally. So I think what we want to do is get people just to accept that, not to get caught up in which side or which explosives, which, you know, way it was done. That evidence is there. That can be proven scientifically. But to get people who, after 10 years are not open to the fact that those buildings could even have been brought down by anything but what they were told, you have to do it almost on a high school level. And this is the simplest script to understand. There's no big words. <laughs> and uh, everyone, we had a table reading with strangers the other day, two, two weeks ago, actors who never saw the script. They read it. They said this was fast. This was easy. And people said to me, I never thought about these things before. So I think that we serve a purpose. And the actors, their personalities, their professionalism, their popularity, it brings this perhaps more into a mainstream opportunity to get Jay Leno or somebody, or I, mean, I don't even know if he's still on TV, <laughs> but you know, to get somebody to open up the hearing from people that are celebrities. We all have our calling. We all do, certainly. And uh, so, and so this was... You are, you're giving me this opportunity. I can't thank you enough. Well, I'm happy to do it. So... So uh, this was developed in collaboration with David Ray Griffin, and you kind of fleshed it out into a, a formal screenplay? Well, I, I, I contacted him on the idea. I said, just like I explained, I said, I want to make a movie out of this. I want to use your stuff, and, you know, I think that's the best way for me to go forward. I trust his judgments. And uh, I learned a lot and learned from a lot of other people. But, yes, it was old because uh, I called him, and he said, go run with it. And I felt flattered that he would let me do that without even knowing me. He lives in California. I was in Florida. Uh, but I guess he felt my sincerity, and I said, I might not know anything about making a movie, but I'm the best man to do this, because I'll, I'll do it. And so uh, it's been an odyssey for me. It's, <laughs> I'm learning something every day. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, that's that's part of the the I, I suppose fascinating thing about this and the frustrating thing because uh, as as you no doubt know, it's it's difficult to find a, the stopping point where where we have to just wrap it up and say we can't cover everything in in a certain amount of time. So, I can understand if that uh, that frustration has crept into the process as well. Not as much, I think, for me anymore because I. I did it knowing at some point you've got to bring it down to the basics. But all these people that are writing us and saying, why don't you put this and why don't you do that, I feel bad, first of all, because we, we can't respond to everybody and we can't include everything. We don't have the ability to research a lot of the things. And as I said, we're hitting on the main things. Like I, I think that the building's coming down. I think the, the fact that the planes were never up in the air. I mean, you know, the certain other things that the, you know will feature here. These are very simple to understand when they're explained properly and you know i think that's our job einstein said to make everything as simple as possible but not simpler hmm. all right well, well we'll be okay we'll take a short break we'll be right back with howard cohen with uh talking about a violation of trust right after these messages Okay, we're back on Corbett Report Radio here, talking to Howard Cohen, the executive director of a forthcoming feature film called A Violation of Trust, dramatizing the first day of a new presidential investigation or reinvestigation into 9-11. And more information about this project, again, can be found at Actors and Artists for 9-11 Truth at aa911truth.org. But, uh, Howard, I understand that you have a story to tell about Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chafee and the NYC CAN project. Much a story as it's an opportunity, and I've been so busy with the film that all I've been able to do is tell people about it. But as you probably know, there's been an effort in the last year or so that um, Senator Mike Gravel was leading with other people to try to find a state that would have a referendum that would allow for a statewide investigation of 9 11. And there were various different states on a list that could have this opportunity. I think there were 26 states that allowed that concept, like Oregon and Massachusetts and California and others, but there were therefore 24 that didn't have it. And uh, last January 1st, when they swore in the new governor, Lincoln Chaffee Jr., I remembered that he was on the board or the investigatory list, the people who were going to be the investigators, if in fact they were able to pass a referendum in New York City stating that there was going to be a New York City investigation. That's the New York City CAN program. And I said to myself, this is the highest elected official in the whole state, probably in the whole country in the sense that he's come out and said he wants a new investigation. Why isn't, why aren't people lining up at his door? Because, you know, while his state doesn't have this referendum process, uh, I lived in New Mexico uh, when I was working with, with Joe Wilson and we were working with Governor Richardson. It's a small state population-wise. Things get done through the governor's office, and I think that there's a missed opportunity. It's already a year that nobody has approached him with the thought of somehow coming up with a campaign or some kind of a inquiry or whatever the legal way of doing it would be, because at least he's listened to the argument before. He was going to be on that panel. He wasn't just someone who signed a petition saying he wanted one. He was going to be on the panel. And I've spoken with some people in Massachusetts, 9-11 groups, and I spoke uh, with Gravel when he was still around and, you know, other people. And I just hope somebody takes the initiative to follow up on that. And, again, I don't have the time because I think what we're doing, uh, you know, has its own role in, 
trying to bring the truth out. You know, we all have to delegate sometimes. But if we can get to Governor Chaffee and show him an interest in something like this, when this film is made, we'd make it available for house parties or whatever in uh, Rhode Island so that people could educate each other. It's a good way for them to learn about it. So I just think it's something that should be followed up by people who are in a position to do that. I'm on the wrong coast right now, <laughs> and I'm busy trying to make the film, but I know there's plenty of people between New York and Massachusetts that can do this. I agree, and I'm certainly hoping if there are some listeners out there that are able to get involved with that, that they would uh, approach uh, the governor about that and try to get something going. And I think it is important to start laying the political groundwork now for whatever may come of this project and any other projects in the future that uh, that hopefully people are also working on in trying to raise awareness of this issue, because if there's no political base for this, then it's uh, kind of casting seeds on, on barren ground. You know, there's a big challenge in accepting, for many people, in accepting that something was different than what we've been told. There's a bigger challenge for everybody on what do we do if this, when, if when, I can't tell you, but if and when this information does come out in the public and does threaten what we think of mainly as, as modern civilization, because this is economic, this is political, this is, you know, legal, there are so many layers, you know, it's, 10, 11 years now, the kids who were in kindergarten are now graduating in high school, and all they've ever learned is the official story. These things are never spoken about, but I think they need to be addressed to show that this is a maturing uh, effort, that we're not just looking to overturn something that was wrong. We're looking to plan for the future, how we deal with this. The, 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 you know, knowledge, uh, let me say it differently, sometimes knowledge can be dangerous in the sense that it's going to turn a lot of things upside down. And I don't know if enough thought is given about how you deal with these different layers of, of change that will come about if everybody's belief system is upturned and all of a sudden the truth as we think it is, whatever it is, is out. See, our movie doesn't speculate on what the truth is. It simply says what we've been told is the truth cannot be true. And we hope that people will, you know, put their effort together and use all the resources on the Internet and other ways to figure out what the real truth is, but... We just want to get them thinking about it enough that they do something, like in Rhode Island. Of course, the other side of that is uh, if and when the information does start to come out, if it uh, doesn't come out at an opportune time, if it comes out decades uh, later, like uh, things like the Gulf of Tonkin eventually have kind of filtered down to the point where people understand that that never really happened and that the entire basis for the Vietnam War was uh, was a complete fabrication. If it happens too late, then uh, then it can come out and uh, and no one really does anything about it. It can be information that uh, that could be the most startling information imaginable, but... If for some reason, people just don't want to act on something that's uh, so far in the past. Well, you know, I agree with what you're saying. Another example, and it's almost the same kind of timing, was in the late 70s when the Assassination Committee in Congress investigated the uh, two Kennedys and the, and the Martin Luther King assassinations, and they said that President Kennedy, there were four bullets and it had to be a conspiracy. And yet Tom Hanks and HBO are doing some big, big special next year for the anniversary, um, talking about Lee Harvey Oswald as a lone gunman. I mean, this is in the books. It's in the congressional record. This is not something that's thrown on the Internet as disinformation. They even made a list of who didn't do it. They said it wasn't the FBI. It couldn't be the Secret, the secret Service. You know, it was like yeah. a warning out of your cigarette package.
Right, exactly. As opposed to 90% of the public who don't believe it was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. But uh, but I guess they have the money and resources, so they win in that uh, PR battle. At any rate, we'll be back to talk more about these issues right after these break- this message. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. All right, friends, we're back talking to Howard Cohen, executive director of the forthcoming feature film, A Violation of Trust, dramatizing the events in a forthcoming, hopeful, hopefully one day to be real, new investigation into 9-11. So, Howard, let's start talking about the, the script and, and some of the facts and evidence that you raise in it, because as you say, obviously, this is going to be a, a, a script that's going to be obviously given a fine-tooth comb uh, treatment by the people out there who are... Well, perhaps uh, going to, to be trying to cast uh, stones at it and trying to, uh, to bring it down. So let's talk about some of the facts that you've, you've included and some of that best evidence that we were talking about before. Why don't you start off or give me some direction, or she just want me to start off? Uh, well, I, can, I, I guess we'll start with the, uh, the, uh, the bringing down of the, the buildings, because that's uh, one of the most talked about points. So, uh, so what does the uh, script really bring up in that connection? Well, we were trying to use um, human interest, and, and there was a, um, I think it's fairly well known, perhaps within people who study the subject matter, there was a tape, a lost tape of voices of firefighters who were on the 78th floor of the South Tower for 14 minutes fighting against the flames uh, before the building fell down on them. And that tape was lost in a desk drawer somewhere at the fire department for over a year after 9-11. And when it was finally listened to, the 15, I think, families of the firefighters that were on it were allowed to come uh, to listen to it. I think they had a hotel suite or someplace. And uh, first of all, they had to sign secrecy agreements with the Bloomberg administration that they wouldn't tell anybody what they heard on that. Uh, but, of course, this is a presidential hearing, so the lady who's representing that group of people can speak about it, and she explains what she heard, and um, didn't hear fear, didn't hear, you know, it's overwhelming us. They said that they needed two hoses to put out the fire and that they had it under control. Then, as I said, the building fell on them. So we use that as an introduction to the concept of, well, what made this South Tower fall? And we give the... Uh, scientist that's representing NIST, Dr. Singer in our movie, not to be confused, of course, with Dr. Sunder, but Dr. Singer, um, and he comes on and explains their official theory of uh, planes were hitting it and the fireproofing fell off and the jet fuel burst into flames and everything softened and then they fell down from their own weight. And uh, we disagree, or witnesses who are there disagree, and uh, the one witness, Richard Gage, he gets up and explains the uh, concept of explosives being used in concepts of free falls and, you know, the whole concept of controlled demolition. And then we speak about the dust, and we bring uh, Niels Harrett as a witness in. He comes in on satellite from Copenhagen. We have a big screen in the room. And that's sort of the direction that we take. We, we want to set as much as we can up with the personal experiences of the real people who've been affected by 9-11 and draw from that uh, the science or the facts or the timelines. We deal with the three different timelines that NORAD came out with and why they didn't intercept any airplanes. And we show, you know, the actual clips that they, you know, 
contradict themselves at the 9-11 hearings. We have the copies of the reports that the FAA had submitted that said that they had a, uh, a conference call going on from 8.50 in the morning uh, when they claim that none of the last three planes, the military says they didn't know about until they've even hijacked until after they crashed, which contradicted their first two reports. So we have to explain that to people in a way that they understand simply. These are major things. I mean, you know, the fact that the military didn't show up is a major thing. It may not be as exciting to a lot of people as death rays or other subjects, uh, whether a plane flew over or under or never hit the Pentagon. But these are things that are, are factual that could stand up in a court of law because they're part of these official reports. They're statements people made under oath. Uh, these are the kind of things that when you really come down to it, you know, they got Al Capone on income tax evasion. They never could prove he murdered anybody. So we, you know, we try to present a very simple case of we've been lied to and, and here's some of the things we've been lied about. And more important, open yourself up to the fact that you've been lied to and see what you can put into your life to make it better. Well, I certainly agree about that. And that's the uh, tact that I usually take uh, with with these questions because I, I think that there is just such overwhelming uh, evidence in all sorts of different fields that to devote all of the attention to the to the buildings themselves and just the physical anomalies of that day I think does limit it too much. So how about other aspects of, of branching out uh, such as uh, the, the 9-11 insider trading or uh, the, the background of the hijackers and how they were identified and anything along those lines? Well, uh, you mentioned the insider trading. That's one of the five new consensus points that was recently put out, I think, in the last week or two uh, by David Griffin and Elizabeth uh, Woodworth and the people that are working on that, just bringing that to your attention. Well, that's why I said I had 377 scripts, because I started out, I had every page was looking like a long-term speech, and that's not the way you make a movie. So everyone was, you know, pitching in on what they thought was important and not. And we went through so many different things thinking, is this important enough? Is this more important? Is this too trivial? Is this minutia? Is this something people won't uh, accept? I mean, they, they half the quotes that the uh, NIST people put out about their science are, are so funny that if you were to put them into a movie script, the audience wouldn't believe that they would really say that. They would say, oh, you're just trying to make them look like a clown. So it did take a lot of uh, discipline to come down to whatever the topics are we, we handle. And you mentioned before, you know, this is a 90, 100-minute movie. Um, and no more than, than 40 minutes of, let's say, could be so many facts that people could sit there and digest them. It's not like a book that you can turn the page or go back to something. You, you hear it, and it's gone. So we have to feed it to people at a pace that they can understand it. Uh, I think the message of the movie is more wake up than it is having to hit them over the head with the facts. It's wake up to these facts. Be aware that they're there. And, and open yourself up to accepting them. Facts are all over the place. They don't have to go far to look. We give them enough. We show them enough things that were done dishonestly and probably very illegally that they should be awoken. But we, we try to give them that psychological message that, first of all, there's, there's a hope. People can stand up against these things. You know, the whole Watergate thing blew apart because somebody asked John uh, Dean, a question, and he brought up the concept of Nixon recording everything. One of those kind of things could come out at a 9-11 hearing one day, and, boy, that would change everything. But, you know, these are things that, you know, we're, we're trying to give an example of what could come up in a hearing. I don't want to give away what happens in ours. 
Well, certainly not. And, uh, but I, I do take the point, absolutely, because it's still difficult for, for people of my generation to, to really conceive of the fact that, that most people, the vast majority of the American public never saw the Zapruder film until over a decade after the, uh, the assassination of JFK. So, uh, just game-changing type, uh, uh, material and evidence can come out at the least suspected time. So absolutely, I think, who knows what would come out in a new investigation or how this uh, would develop, but uh, but certainly I think that's what we have to be advocating for. But you do bring up the the, the question and the problem of presenting something in, in different media so that in a book you have more space and time and, and can go into deeper detail and, and really hash points out in a way that it would be very difficult to do in an audiovisual form like in a feature film. Uh, talk about some of the the problems that have come out and what types of uh, ideas you have for, for trying to present this uh, evidence visually. Well, Paul, we have two other people that are helping me every day. I mentioned Paul Cross and uh, Cliff Greenow, who helped arrange this interview and uh, is our associate producer. Uh, Paul's background, as I said, he's also an actor, and he's done some directing, and he said that, just like they had on the JFK film, a good mechanism to break up the, quote, talking heads of everybody being in the room is to insert uh, what people are thinking about while they're talking about it. So it may appear like uh, somebody's speaking about, um, you know, somebody uh, deleting something from a document. So they might, while they're talking about that, there might be a reenactment of that kind of an action. Or we, we're using as much as we can real footage that hasn't been seen much around. So it gives people a visual as well as listening to the testimony at the same time. It helps the movie move faster. See, I've watched so many documentaries, and I've been sometimes I had to turn them off after every half an hour because they just throw too much at you to absorb. And a feature film is just the opposite. It's supposed to be a narrative story. You're supposed to be able to use the film to reach people on a human interest level, to you know appeal to different uh, uh, points in their personalities that may be drawn by the dialogue, by the acting of the artist. And this is different than a documentary. It's different than um, many forms of delivering, let's just say, 9-11 information. I mean, I could read David's books. I could read a lot of people's books until, you know, the end of time because they're interesting. But I could always go back a page or stop and think about something. Uh, here it goes by so quickly that you have to give people a chance to absorb it. So we can't overwhelm them with just facts for the sake of it. The concepts that they've been, you know, lied to and how they've been lied to and how the government avoided doing this when they were supposed to do that. And those are just as important because those are the things that they don't get necessarily to understand from some of the books that are more knowledge-driven or the documentaries which are knowledge-driven. So we have, we have a balance. And that way the, the phrase docudrama really fits this, except we're an event that hasn't happened yet. It's an investigation no one's called for yet. Yet exactly. Well, um, I must say that I'm I'm very hardened by the fact that you you pointed Twelve Angry Men as a possible precedent for this because I think that's a perfect example of how to take this type of uh, of presentation of facts and make it into a very dramatic uh, story. And of course, that one worked ex- exceptionally well. So uh, so anything along those lines would be very much uh, appreciated. So so talk about some of the uh, the ideas that uh, that you've looked at and some of the the examples that you've you've thought about in the creation of this. Well, I read 12 Angry Men after I watched the movie twice with Henry Fonda. And I even looked at the descriptions in the beginning of the script where they told you which these 12 people were. So I can then relate because they don't mention the actors. They just you know, tell you juror number one in the script. So I, I began to understand you needed some kind of 
balance of the personalities, but you needed the Henry Fonda character, and we have that character in the movie uh, representing the families that uh, play a certain role in the movie, and uh, this person is a woman, and she drives the Henry Fonda role in the sense that she's trying to convince the other side of the table, the people that are there representing the president, how important it is to have this new investigation and how, you know, we've been deceived. And you have to have people, as any government would probably have, that are as much neutral as they can. So when Ed Asner plays the chairman, he plays Mr. Neutral. He's there to, you know, make sure it's done right. It's a clean break. And then we have Daniel Sonata. He's going to be playing the attorney that represents the um, Justice Department, and he's there to get the truth. And then we have an ambassador who's sort of a uh, confidant of former presidents, et cetera, and then he doesn't want the truth to come out. And so you get a little battle over, you know, are you doing the right thing? Why are you here using the government, using the Bush administration? And this, I think, adds to the ability for people to start to relate because this is what you would see on TV. You wouldn't just see everybody line up, give their testimony, and then all of a sudden, you know, all right, that's it, new investigation's over. They'd be fighting. There are plenty of people that do not want the truth to come out. And if we were not to represent that in the movie, we would not be doing our job. We have more information in there that rebuts the official, that rebuts the, the uh, new information because we want to show these were the things that we've been running up against. When you talk about nanothermite, there are people that come back with some very strong arguments about, you know, why there was no nanothermite or this or that about the nanothermite. But the truth comes through. But we have to show it in a balanced way, otherwise it's a propaganda piece. And, and we're doing this in a patriotic way. We're thinking that, you know, we're the patriots that are coming along and just trying to open people's eyes up. So it's not propaganda. It comes from one side, so to say, the alternative side. But as uh, David and some other people have said, there's only one conspiracy. That's that 19 guys and a guy in a cave did this. So those of us on the outside are really the anti-conspiracy theorists. Well, that's that's, that's exactly right. Exactly, the 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 most insane theory of them all is the official conspiracy theory that uh, unfortunately the nine eleven commission managed to come out with. So, um, and I hope that um, my own work in the past has helped to highlight some of that. But I, I certainly hope that this will have an even greater effect of really getting this this information out. And as I say, there are so many people who avoid looking at this, and uh, and so it's good to have it in a different form. And and uh, again, with such a high have talent quality uh, artists and actors involved with this. Um, just extremely exciting. Tell us about the uh, the reaction of some of these actors uh, to the script uh, after they've gotten a chance to read it. Well, I went um, to see Ed Asner on February 1st last year. He was our litmus test. We had talked with him and about this. Uh, I said we, in this case, it was myself and David Griffin. And we said, uh, when we're ready, I'll go to Ed. So I went to Ed, and within 10 minutes, he had his Rolodex out, and he was giving me Martin Sheen's number and John Hurd's number. And I felt, you know, very relieved that a lot of the work I'd been doing, because he'd read the script before, was starting to, you know, become fruitful. So I got in touch with Martin Sheen, and it was about a week or so before he left for England with his son, uh, Emilio Estevez. They were releasing a film that Martin started and his son directed. And he said, you know, get back to me. I'm going to read the script. Get back to me in a few days, which I did. And uh, I asked him to play a certain role, and he agreed. And I said, you know, can we promote this as such? And he said, yes. So, uh, you know, we had him involved, and John Hurd got on, and a whole bunch of others. And then uh, I said, let's see if we can get Woody Harrelson. And I got in touch with people that represent him, and they gave me uh, they arranged for him to call Ed Asner. Ed is acting as the 
uh, executive producer like myself. He's in charge of helping with talent. And uh, we arranged for Woody to call from Toronto where he was directing a play to Ed's house. And he called, and it was on the speakerphone, and Ed was joking with him at first. I can't use the language, but he was joking with him, like, you know, who's calling me? And so eventually we started telling him about the movie, and then I got on the phone and I uh, explained much of what I've been explaining to you. And he said, you know, you have to get in touch with this guy, David Ray Griffin. He knows everything. And I said, well, David and I have been working on the script a couple of years, and I'm calling. They ask you to play him in the movie. He said, I'm in. I mean, that's how the response has been. Woody Harrelson is David Ray Griffin. Am I missing something email. there? Pardon me? <laughs> did, I, did I misinterpret that? Are you saying Woody Harrelson as David Ray Griffin? Yeah, Woody was in a very interesting movie. It was a documentary where they had some live actors playing people. Uh, this was called Man King. And there were some people that were like doctors that worked in Man King and things that were going on in 1937. Of course, it's a very difficult time there for those people. And they made him look a little older, and he was a very dignified, you know, speaking person. And, and you know, he has that same look as David. I don't have any problems. I see the look. Playing. I actually can see the look now that I think about it. But uh, but certainly oh, no, the age difference there, would be and, and interesting. You're going to be very surprised because I, I actually went about a month ago when he came out with his last film, Rampart, and I went to the screening. I was invited, even though myself and my two friends were the, like the first ones there. We got talking to people. By the time he came to get seated, there were no more seats. They had to find three individual seats, and they put me in the second row in the center. So after the movie was over... The actors come out to answer questions. I'm sitting with one person between me and Woody. Some lady yells out in the audience, what are your future roles going to be? And I I yelled out to him. I said, Dr. Ray, David Ray Griffin. And he smiled and he shook his head and he said, get back in touch with Tracy, of course. So that's the lady I've been talking with. So it's just, uh, there's, a, there's a serendipity around this project. I can't explain it any better than that. Well, I think I can speak on behalf of a fair number of listeners that we're all very much looking forward to this. So after the break, we'll come back with Howard Cohen and talk about how people out there can help to support this project and help to make sure that it does get launched into the stratosphere and seen by millions around the globe. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back after these messages. Radio, the final minutes here as we're talking to Howard Cohen about the forthcoming feature film, A Violation of Trust. And again, of course, for more information, please go to Actors and Artists for 9-11 Truth at aa911truth.org to find out more about this project and some of the other signatories to the uh, Actors and Artists for 9-11 Truth petition. Uh, again, just an incredible uh, list of names there of people who uh, really have put their careers on the line and put a lot at stake in in attempting to help spread the word about uh, 9-11 truth and what it really means and what it, what matters about it. So, Howard, my hat's off to you for getting involved in this project and, and bringing it all together. So uh, perhaps in the final few min- minutes here, we can just address how people can get involved with this project, how people can support it, how, uh, how they can help to, to make sure that this does become a success. Well, first, thank you again for inviting me and letting me speak uh, my mind. Um, uh, people can also go to aa911truth.com, just in case they forget 
a lot of people go calm, and it shows up as well. We've come into some very interesting circumstances. Um, we had two city hall buildings that we were going to use to film the movie, and uh, because of whatever the reasons were when they read the script, uh, they never called us back. Uh, we've come across some other situations with certain vendors who, again, once they've read the script, uh, didn't feel it was appropriate for them to get involved because they have big corporate customers like, you know, big studios here that buy their services. So there's a little bit of a blockage in getting through, and, uh, you know, we're committed to making this. We're talking with an independent studio right now. Um, I would almost like to hear this become the movie that was too hot for Hollywood to make <laughs> to get us some notoriety. And I think that's true, though, because the distribution systems are controlled by big corporations, and, uh, you know, we have to be very careful with this movie. So we're trying to open up our coffers to whoever wants to help. We're offering uh, for people who want to help us with a $25 donation at the website, um, a DVD when the film comes out. And, um, you know, whatever help we can get is, is, is uh, definitely appreciated and is always helping with something or something else. That would be the most direct way people can help. The other way is to be open uh, when they meet with people to try to, you know, share some of the things that I've portrayed that's going to be in our movie, the simplicity. Don't get caught up in all these big details. You know, there's a certain way that people have to be won over. And if you bombard them with just facts, it's not going to work because they've been bombarded for 10 years. There has to be a new approach, and I think the new approach is going to have to be much more in a healing fashion. You know, I understand your pain, you understand my pain, but, you know, how do we get past that? I think the concept of, of um, uh, what they call uh, truth commissions um, are things that have to be looked at as alternative ways to have an investigation that brings the truth out, heals the country, gives people a chance to, to step up, um, but doesn't have the vengeance of having to punish certain people who may have been more instrumental in the big picture, I'd rather have the truth than have certain people spend the rest of their lives in jail. So I'm trying to say that I think a more dignified approach would be to push for an investigation that offers the possibility of people who have a, a, a secret because they were told to do something they didn't realize was wrong at the time, whether they were flying an airplane or a firefighter who was told to shut up. I mean, a lot of these things are, are haunting a lot of people. There are a lot of people who would like to talk about their experiences and what they know about 9-11. And I think that kind of an approach, some kind of a truth commission that would make them feel they couldn't be prosecuted as long as they told the truth, would be an excellent way for us to proceed to open people up to the subject. Because there's still a lot of people who, who will stand by, you know, you're either with us or without us philosophy that the Bush-Cheney people had. And, you know, that this country has continued to stonewall anything that opposes the official story. It's the false, exactly. It's the false dialectic that they set up to try to stop people from coming forward. And there are more people with information, and more people are waking up to this every day. So once again, aa911truth.org, actors and artists for 911truth.com. Howard Cohen, thank you again for your time tonight. Thank you very much, James. Take care of yourself.